Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 32 In which Joss takes flight and the war is brought to a close. Crowds hurry to the Namer Gate in alarm. Each man asked his neighbor for news, and even great English lords and ladies condescended to speak to strangers. The friends of the French were wild with excitement, prophesying the emperor's triumph. Women rushed to the churches and knelt and prayed on the steps. The dull sound of the cannon went on. Rolling, rolling, presently carriages with travellers began to leave the town. The prophecies of the French partisans began to pass for facts. He has cut the armies in two, it was said. He is marching on Brussels. He will overpower the English and be here tonight. He will overpower the English, shrieked Isidore to his master, and he will be here tonight. Joss's face grew pale. All his champagne brought no courage. Before sunset, he was worked up to such a pitch of nervousness that Isidore now felt sure of winning the spoils of his possessions. After hearing the firing, the stout major's wife ran in to console Amelia and passed five hours by her friend's side, sometimes talking cheerfully, oftener in silence and terrified mental supplication. I never let go her hand once, said she afterwards, until after sunset, when the firing was over. When the noise stopped, Mrs. O'Dowd came into the parlor, where Joss sat with two emptied flasks and courage entirely gone. Once or twice he had ventured into his sister's bedroom and went away without saying anything. He was ashamed to tell her that he wanted to fly. But when Mrs. O'Dowd appeared in the dining room, where he sat in the twilight, he began to open his mind to her. Oh, Mrs. O'Dowd, he said, hadn't you better get Amelia ready? Are you going to take her out for a walk? said the major's lady. Sure, she's too weak. I've ordered the carriage, he said, and, and post horses. Isidore is gone for them. "'What do you want with driving tonight?' answered the lady. "'I've just got her to lie down.' "'Get her up,' said Joss. "'She must get up, I say.' He stamped his foot. "'The horses are ordered. It's all over, and—' "'And what?' asked Mrs. O'Dowd. "'I'm off again. Everybody is going. "'Well, there's a place for you. We shall start in half an hour.' The major's wife looked at him with infinite scorn. "'I don't move till O'Dowd gives me the route,' said she. "'You may go if you like, Mr. Sedley. But, Faith, Amelia and I stop here.' "'She shall go,' said Joss, with another stamp of his foot. Mrs. O'Dowd put herself with arms akimbo before the bedroom door. "'Is it her mother you're going to take her to?' she said. Or do you want to go to Mamma yourself, Mr. Sedley? A pleasant journey to you, sir, and take my advice and shave off them mustachios, or they'll bring you into mischief. Oh, damn! yelled out Joss, in fear, rage, and mortification, and Isidore came in, swearing, too. All the horses were already gone. Joss was not the only man in Brussels seized with panic that day. But Joss's fears were destined to increase to an almost frantic pitch before the night was over. It has been mentioned how Pauline, the cook, had a lover in the ranks of the army that had gone to meet Napoleon. This man, Regulus, was a Belgian hussar. 
As far as his regiment was concerned, this campaign was over now. They had marched under the Prince of Orange, looking as gallant a body of men as ever trumpet sounded for. When Ney dashed upon the Allied troops before the arrival of the British army, the Belgian squadrons retreated before the French and were dislodged from their posts. Their movements were only checked by the advance of the British in their rear. Thus forced to halt, the enemy's cavalry came to close quarters with these brave Belgians, who, preferring to meet the British rather than the French, turned tail and rode through the English regiments behind them and scattered in all directions. The Belgian regiment did not exist anymore. It was nowhere. Regulus found himself galloping many miles from the battlefield entirely alone, and naturally he flew to that kitchen where Pauline had so often welcomed him. At ten o'clock the clinking of a sabre might have been heard, and a knock at the kitchen door, and poor Pauline, come back from church, almost fainted with terror as she saw her haggard hussar. She stifled her scream, and leading her hero into the kitchen, gave him beer and choice leftovers from dinner. Between mouthfuls, he told his tale of disaster. His regiment had performed prodigies of courage, he said, and had withstood for a while the whole French army. But they were overwhelmed at last, as was the British army. Ney destroyed each English regiment, and the Belgians interposed in vain. It was a day back. He sought to drown his sorrow in floods of beer. Isidore came in, heard the conversation, and rushed out to inform his master. It's all over, he shrieked. The British army is in full flight. There is only one man escaped, and he is in the kitchen now. Come, come and hear him. So Joss tottered into that room where Regulus sat clinging to his flagon of beer, and in ungrammatical French begged the hussar to tell his tale. The disasters deepened as Regulus spoke. He was the only man of his regiment not slain. He had seen the Duke of Brunswick fall, the black hussars fly, the Scots pounded down by the cannon. And our regiment, gasped Joss, cut in pieces, said the hussar. Pauline cried out. Oh, my poor mistress, went off into hysterics and filled the house with her screams. Wild with terror, Mr. Sedley knew not where to seek for safety. He rushed back to the sitting room and resolved to go into the street. So, Seizing a candle, he put on his gold-laced cap, such is the force of habit that even in his terror he began mechanically to twiddle with his hair and arrange his hat. Then he looked amazed at the pale face in the mirror and his freshly grown mustachios. They will mistake me for a military man, thought he remembering Isidore's warning that the British army would be massacred, and swagger and and staggering back to his bedchamber, he began wildly pulling at the bell. Isidore answered. Joss had sunk in a chair. He had torn off his neckcloths and turned down his collars. Coupez-moi, Isidore, shouted he. Vite, coupez-moi. Isidore thought for a moment he had gone mad and wished his throat to be cut. La moustache! gasped Joe. La moustache! Coupe! Rosé! Vite! Vite! Isidore swept off the mustachios in no time with the razor, and heard with delight his master's orders that he should fetch a plain coat and hat. Ne porte plus! Habit militaire! Bonny! Bonny à vous! were Joss's words, and the military coat and cap were at last Isidore's property. Joss donned a plain black coat and waistcoat, a large white neckcloth, and a beaver hat. You would have fancied he was a parson as he plunged into the street. 
although Regulus had vowed that he was the only man of his regiment left alive, it appeared that this was incorrect. Many scores of his comrades had found their way back to Brussels and filled the whole town with the idea of the Allies' defeat. The arrival of the French was expected hourly. Preparations for flight went on everywhere. No horses, thought Joss in terror. He made Isidore inquire, and his heart sank when none were found. Should he take the journey on foot? Even fear could not make that ponderous body so active. Joss wandered irresolutely through the park, with crowds of other people. Some were happier than himself, having discovered a team of horses and rattling through the streets. Others, like him, could not leave. Amongst these, Joss noticed Lady Bearacres and her daughter, who sat in their carriage ready, but with no horses to drive them away. Rebecca Crawley occupied rooms in their hotel, and had previously had hostile meetings with the Bearacres family. My Lady Bearacres cut her on the stairs, shocked at her familiarity with General Tufto. The Lady Blanche avoided her as if she were an infectious disease. Only the Earl himself kept up a sly, occasional acquaintance with her, out of hearing of his ladies. Rebecca had her revenge now upon these enemies. It became known in the hotel that Captain Crawley's horses had been left behind, and when the panic began, Lady Bearacres condescended to send her maid to the captain's wife with her ladyship's compliments, and a desire to know the price of Mrs. Crawley's horses. Mrs. Crawley returned a note saying that it was not her custom to bargain with ladies' maids. This curt reply brought the Earl in person to Becky's apartment, but he had no more success. So the Countess herself actually came to see Mrs. Crawley. She begged her to name her own price. She even offered to invite Becky to Bearacre's house. Mrs. Crawley sneered at her. I don't want to be waited on by bailiffs in livery, she said and you will probably never get back, at least not you and your diamonds together. The French will have those. They will be here in two hours, and I shall be halfway to get by then. I would not sell you my horses. No, not for the largest diamonds that your ladyship wore at the ball. Lady Bearacres trembled with rage and terror. The diamonds were sewed into her clothing, and my lord's padding and boots. Woman, I will have the horses, she said. Rebecca laughed in her face. The infuriated countess went and sat in her carriage. Her servants and husband were sent once more through the town to look for horses. Rebecca had the pleasure of seeing her ladyship in the horseless carriage, and loudly bewailed the countess's perplexities to all around. Not to be able to get horses, she said loudly, and to have all those diamonds sewed in the carriage cushions. What a prize it will be for the French when they come. The diamonds, I mean, not the lady. Lady Bearacres could have shot her from the carriage window. It was while enjoying her enemy's humiliation that Rebecca caught sight of Joss coming towards her. That frightened, fat face told his secret. He, too, was looking for horses. He shall buy them, thought Rebecca, and I'll ride the mare. Joss walked up and put the question for the hundredth time. Did she know where horses were to be had? What? You fly? laughed Rebecca. I thought you were the champion of all the ladies, Mr. Sedley. Uh, I'm, I'm not a military man. And who is to protect poor little Amelia? asked Rebecca. You surely would not desert her. What good can I do her if the enemy arrive? Joss answered. They'll spare the women, but my man tells me that they'll give no mercy to the men. Oh, the 
dastardly cowards. Besides, she shan't be deserted. There is a, a seat for her in my carriage, and one for you, dear Mrs. Crawley, if you will come, and, and if we can get horses. I have two to sell, she said. Joss could have flung himself into her arms. Oh, get the carriage, Isadora, he cried. My horses never were in harness, she added. Bullfinch would kick the carriage to pieces, but he is quiet to ride, and as fast as a hare. Do you think he is up to my weight? Rebecca asked him to come into her room to conclude the bargain. He had seldom spent a half hour which cost him so much money. Rebecca put upon her horses a price so prodigious as to make even Joss draw back. She said Lord Bearacres below would give her the same money, and though she loved the Sedley family, her dear Mr. Joseph knew that poor people must live. Nobody could be more affectionate but more firm about the business. Joss ended by agreeing. The sum was so large that he was obliged to ask for time. It was a small fortune to Rebecca, who rapidly calculated that with this sum and the sale of Rawdon's effects and her widow's pension should he fall, she would now be absolutely independent. Once or twice that day she had herself thought about flying, but she reasoned, Suppose the French do come. What can they do to a poor officer's widow? We shall be allowed to go home quietly, or I may live pleasantly abroad with a snug little income. Meanwhile, Joss and Isidore went off to the stables. Joss bade his man saddle the horses at once. He would ride away that very night. He left the valet getting the horses ready and went home to prepare for his departure. It must be secret. He would go by the back door. He did not care to face Mrs. O'Dowd and Amelia and confess that he was about to run. By this time, it was almost morning. But there was no rest for the city. The people were up, the lights in the houses flamed, and the streets were busy. Rumours went still from mouth to mouth. One report said that the Prussians had been utterly defeated, another that the English had been conquered, a third that they had held their ground. This last rumour gradually got strength. No Frenchman had appeared. Stragglers had come in from the army bringing reports more and more favourable, and at last an aide-de-camp reached Brussels with dispatches for the commandant, who announced the success of the Allies at Quatre Bras and the entire repulse of the French after a six-hours battle. The aide-de-camp must have arrived while Joss and Rebecca were making their bargain together. When he reached his hotel, he found a score of inhabitants discussing the news. There was no doubt as to its truth. He went up to tell it to the ladies under his charge. He did not think it was necessary to inform them how he had intended to leave them, how he had bought horses, or the price he had paid. But success or defeat was a minor matter to them, who only thought of the safety of those they loved. Amelia, at the news of the victory, became even more agitated. She begged her brother in tears to take her to the army, and the poor girl raved and ran hither and thither in hysteric insanity. No man writhing in pain on the battlefield fifteen miles off suffered more keenly than this poor, harmless victim of the war. Joss could not bear the sight of her pain. He left his sister in the care of her female companion and descended once more to the hotel doorway, where everybody still lingered, waiting for more news. It grew to be broad daylight. Wagons and country carts laden with wounded came rolling into the town. Ghastly groans came from them, and haggard faces looked up sadly from out of the straw. Joss watched one pass. The moans within were frightful. The wearied horses could hardly pull the cart. 
Stop! Stop! A feeble voice cried from the straw, and the carriage stopped opposite the hotel. It is George! I know it is! cried Amelia, rushing to the balcony with a pale face. It was not George, but it was the next best thing. It was news of him. It was poor Tom Stubble, who had marched out of Brussels so gallantly twenty-four hours before, bearing the regimental colours, which he had defended very bravely. A French lancer had speared him. He fell, still holding his flag. After the battle, a place had been found for the poor boy in a cart, and he was brought back to Brussels. Mr. Sedley, Mr. Sedley, cried the boy faintly, and Joss came up almost frightened. Little Tom Stubble held out his hot and feeble hand. I'm to be taken in here, he said. Osborne and... And Dobbin said I was, and you are to give the man two Napoleons. My mother will pay you. The young fellow was delirious. The hotel was large and the people kind, and all the inmates of this cart were taken in and placed on various couches. The young ensign was carried upstairs to Osborne's quarters. You may imagine the feelings of Amelia and the Major's wife when they were told that both their husbands were safe. In what mute rapture Amelia embraced her friend. In what a grateful passion of prayer she fell on her knees and thanked the power which had saved her husband. She and Mrs. O'Dowd watched incessantly by the wounded lad, whose pains were very severe, and in this duty Amelia had not time to brood over her anxieties. The young patient told in his simple fashion the events of the day and the actions of our gallant friends. The regiment had suffered severely, losing many officers and men. The major's horse had been shot under him as the regiment charged, and they all thought that O'Dowd was gone, until, returning from the charge, the major was discovered seated on his horse's carcass, refreshing himself from a bottle. It was Captain Osborne that cut down the French lancer who had speared the ensign. Amelia turned pale at the notion. And it was Captain Dobbin who, though wounded himself, took up the lad in his arms and carried him to the surgeon, and then to the cart which was to bring him back to Brussels. And it was he who promised the driver to Louis if he would go to Mr. Sedley's hotel and tell Mrs. Osborne that the action was over and that her husband was unhurt. Indeed. He has a good heart, that William Dobbin, Mrs. O'Dowd said, though he is always laughing at me. Young Stubble vowed there was not such another officer in the army, and praised the senior captain's modesty, his kindness, and his admirable coolness in the field. To these parts of the conversation Amelia paid little attention. It was only when George was spoken of that she listened, and when he was not mentioned, she thought about him. Intending her patient, a second day passed. There was only one man in the army for her, and as long as he was well, its movements interested her little. The reports which Joss brought from the streets fell vaguely on her ears, though they gave that timorous gentleman and many other people much disquiet. The French had been repulsed, certainly, but only after a severe struggle and with only one division of the French army. The Emperor, with the main body, was away at Ligny, where he annihilated the Prussians and was now free to bring his whole force to bear upon the Allies. The Duke of Wellington was retreating to the capital, and a great battle must be fought under its walls, probably, of which the result was doubtful. Wellington had only twenty thousand British troops on whom he could rely, for the German troops were raw and the Belgians disaffected. With this handful, 
he had to resist a hundred and fifty thousand men under Napoleon. Under Napoleon! What warrior was there, however famous and skillful, that could fight him at those odds? Joss thought of this and trembled. So did the rest of Brussels. The English would perish at their posts, and the conqueror would pass over their bodies into the city. Woe to those whom he found there. Tricolored banners and triumphal emblems were made to welcome the arrival of His Majesty, the Emperor Napoleon. The emigration continued, and wherever families could find means of departure, they fled. When Joss, on the afternoon of the 17th of June, went to Rebecca's hotel, he found that the great Bear Acres carriage had at length rolled away. The Earl had somehow found a pair of horses. Joss felt that yesterday's delay had been only a respite, and that his dearly bought horses must surely soon be needed. His agonies were very severe all day. As long as there was an English army between Brussels and Napoleon, there was no need of immediate flight. But he had his horses brought to his hotel, so that they might be under his own eyes and beyond the risk of abduction. Isidore watched the stable door constantly and had the horses saddled and ready. After her previous reception, Rebecca did not care to come near her dear Amelia. She clipped the bouquet which George had brought her and gave fresh water to the flowers and read over the letter which he had sent her. "'Poor wretch,' she said, twirling the bit of paper in her fingers. "'How I could crush her with this! "'And she must break her heart for a stupid coxcomb who does not care for her. "'My poor good Rawdon is worth ten of him.' "'And then she began thinking what she should do if anything happened to poor good Rawdon, "'and what a great piece of luck it was that he had left his horses behind.' During this day, too, Rebecca thought of the precaution which the Countess Bearacres had taken, and did a little needlework herself. She stitched away trinkets and banknotes about her person, and so was ready either to fly or to stay and welcome the conqueror, whether English or French. And I am not sure that she did not dream that night of becoming a duchess, while Rawdon, wrapped in his cloak and lying in the rain, was thinking with all his heart about the little wife he had left behind. The next day was a Sunday. Mrs. Major O'Dowd had the satisfaction of seeing both her patients refreshed in health and spirits. She herself had slept on a great chair in Amelia's room. When morning came, this robust woman went back to her own house, and here performed a splendid toilette befitting the day. Whilst alone there, one prayer at least was sent up to heaven for the welfare of the brave soldier Michael O'Dowd. When she returned, she brought her prayer book, and her uncle the dean's famous book of sermons. She proposed to read them to Amelia and the wounded ensign. Prayers were read on that day in 20,000 British churches, and millions of British men and women implored protection of the Father of all. They did not hear the noise which disturbed our little congregation at Brussels. As Mrs. O'Dowd was reading the service in her best voice, the cannon of Waterloo began to roar. When Joss heard that dreadful sound, he decided that he would bear this perpetual terror no longer and would fly at once. He rushed into the sick man's room, where our three friends had paused in their prayers, and made a passionate appeal to Amelia. "'I can't stand it any more, Emmy,' he said. "'And you must come with me. I have bought a horse for you, and you must dress and come with me and ride behind Isidore.' "'God forgive me, Mr. Sedley, but you are no better than a coward,' Mrs. O'Dowd said, laying down the book. "'I say, come, Amelia,' 
Joss went on. Never mind her. Why should we stay here and be butchered by Frenchmen? You forget our reg... Oh, okay. You forget our regiment, said Little Stubble from his bed. And you won't leave me, will you, Mrs. O'Dowd? Oh, no, my dear fellow, said she, going and kissing the boy. No harm shall come to you while I stand by. I don't budge till I get the word from Mick. A pretty figure I'd be, wouldn't I, stuck behind that chap on a pillion? The young patient burst out laughing in his bed, and even Amelia smiled. I, I don't ask her, Joss shouted. I don't ask that Irishwoman. But you, Amelia, will you come? Without my husband, Joseph, Amelia said with a look of wonder. Joss's patience was exhausted. Goodbye, then, he said, shaking his fist in a rage and slamming the door behind him. Mrs. O'Dowd heard the clattering hooves as the horses left, and looking through the window, made scornful remarks about poor Joseph as he rode down the street with Isidore after him. The horses were lively and sprang about. Joss was a clumsy and timid horseman. Oh, look at him, Amelia, dear, <laughs> driving into the parlour window. Oh, such a bull in a china shop. Presently, the pair of riders disappeared down the street in the direction of the Ghent Road. All that day, until past sunset, the cannon roared. It was dark when the cannonading suddenly stopped. All of us have read of what occurred during that interval. The tale is in every Englishman's mouth, and you and I, who were children when the great battle was fought, are never tired of hearing the history of that famous action. Its memory rankles still amongst millions of the countrymen of those brave men who lost. They pant for an opportunity of revenging that humiliation. Centuries from now, we Frenchmen and Englishmen might be boasting and killing each other still, carrying out bravely the devil's code of honour. All our friends fought like men. All day long, whilst the women were praying ten miles away, the lines of the dauntless English infantry were receiving and repelling the furious charges of the French horsemen. Guns were ploughing up their ranks, and comrades falling, and the resolute survivors closing in. Towards evening, the French attack slackened in its fury. They had other foes besides the British to engage, or were preparing for a final onset. It came at last. The columns of the Imperial Guard marched up the hill of Saint-Jean to sweep the English from the height which they had maintained all day. The dark, rolling column pressed on and up the hill. It seemed almost to crest the top when it began to wave and falter. Then it stopped, still facing the shot. The English troops rushed from the post from which no enemy had been able to dislodge them, and the guard turned and fled. No more firing was heard at Brussels. The pursuit rolled away. Darkness came down on the field and city, and Amelia was praying for George, who was lying on his face, dead, with a bullet through his heart. Chapter 33 In which Miss Crawley's relations are very anxious about her. The kind reader must please to remember, while the army is marching from Flanders, that there are a number of persons living peaceably in England who must come in for their share of this story. During the time of battle, old Miss Crawley was living at Brighton, very moderately moved by the great events. Although Briggs read out the Gazette, in which Rawdon Crawley's gallantry was mentioned with honour, and his promotion was recorded. What a pity that young man has taken such an irretrievable step, 
his aunt said. He might have married a brewer's daughter with a quarter of a million, or have married a lady. He would have had my money some day or other, or his children would, for I'm not in a hurry to go, Miss Briggs, and instead he's a doomed pauper with a dancing girl for a wife. Will my dear Miss Crawley not cast a compassionate eye upon the heroic soldier whose name is inscribed in the annals of glory? said Miss Briggs, who was greatly excited by the events of Waterloo. Has not the captain, or the colonel as I may now call him, done deeds which make the name of Crawley illustrious? Briggs, you are a fool, said Miss Crawley. "'He has dragged the name of Crawley through the mud. "'Marry a drawing-master's daughter, indeed. "'She was no better than you are, Briggs, "'only younger and a great deal prettier and cleverer. "'I dare say you were her accomplice. "'But you will find yourself disappointed in my will, I can tell you. "'Write to Mr. Waxy and say that I desire to see him immediately.' Miss Crawley was now in the habit of writing to Mr. Waxy, her solicitor, almost every day, for she was greatly perplexed about how to leave her money. She had, however, rallied considerably, as was proved by the increased vigour of her sarcasms upon poor Miss Briggs, who bore her attacks with slavish submission. Who has not seen how women bully women? With what shafts of scorn and cruelty poor women are riddled by the tyrants of their sex. Miss Crawley was always particularly savage when she was rallying from illness. As they say, wounds tingle most when they are about to heal. Miss Briggs was the only victim admitted into the invalid's presence. Yet Miss Crawley's relatives did not forget their beloved kinswoman, and by presents and affectionate messages strove to keep themselves alive in her memory. Rawdon Crawley, a few weeks after Waterloo and his promotion, sent Miss Crawley a dutiful letter and several presents, a pair of French epaulettes, a cross of the Legion of Honor, and a sword-hilt, relics from the battlefield. The letter described with humor how the sword had belonged to a French officer who had sworn never to surrender, only to be taken prisoner the next minute. The cross and epaulettes came from a colonel of French cavalry who had fallen under Rawdon's arm in the battle and Rawdon thus sent the spoils to his kindest, oldest friend. Should he continue to write to her from Paris, where the army was marching, he might be able to give her interesting news from that capital. Miss Crawley made Briggs write back a gracious letter, encouraging him to continue writing. His first letter was so lively and amusing that she looked forward with pleasure to more. Of course, I know— she explained to Miss Briggs, that Rawdon could not write such a good letter, and that it is that clever little wretch of a Rebecca who dictates every word. But that is no reason why he should not amuse me. Becky not only wrote the letters, but also bought the trophies for a few francs from the peddlers who began to deal in relics of the war. Miss Crawley's gracious reply greatly encouraged Rawdon and his lady, and they took care to entertain her with many delightful letters from Paris. To the rector's lady, who went off to tend her husband's broken collarbone at Queen's Crawley, the spinster's letters were not so gracious. Mrs. Bute, that brisk, imperious woman, had committed a fatal error. She had not merely oppressed Miss Crawley, she had bored her, and Miss Briggs was ordered to write to Mrs. Bute, saying that Miss Crawley's health was greatly improved, and begging Mrs. Bute on no account to quit her family for Miss Crawley's sake. How silly I was, Mrs. Bute thought, to hint that I was coming in that last foolish letter. I ought to have gone without a word to the poor old creature and taken her out of the hands of that ninny Briggs and that harpy of a maid. Oh, Bute, why did you break your collarbone? Why, indeed, 
Mrs. Butte had played her cards too well. She had ruled over Miss Crawley's household utterly and completely, to be utterly and completely routed when an opportunity for rebellion came. She considered that she had been the victim of horrible treason and savage ingratitude. Rawdon's promotion filled this good Christian lady with alarm. Would his aunt relent towards him now that he was a lieutenant-colonel? Would that odious Rebecca once more get into favour? The rector's wife wrote a sermon for her husband about the vanity of military glory, which the worthy parson read in his best voice and without understanding one syllable of it. He had Mr. Pitt Crawley in the congregation, but the old baronet would not come to church. Since the departure of Becky Sharp, that old wretch Sir Pitt had given himself up entirely to bad courses, to the great scandal of the county, and the mute horror of his son. The ribbons in Miss Horrock's cap became more splendid than ever. Polite families fled the hall in terror. Sir Pitt drank rum and water with the farmers at Mudbury on market days. He drove the family coach to Southampton with Miss Horrocks inside, and the county people expected every week, as his son did in speechless agony, that his marriage with her would soon be announced. It was indeed a hard burden for Mr. Crawley to bear. When he rose to speak at religious assemblies, he felt that the audiences said, "'That is the son of the old reprobate Sir Pitt, "'who is very likely drinking at the public-house at this very moment.' "'Meanwhile, Miss Crawley's dear nephews and nieces "'were unanimous in loving her and sending her tokens of affection. "'Mrs. Butte sent guinea-fowls and some fine cauliflowers "'and a pretty purse or pincushion worked by her darling girls, "'while Mr. Pitt sent peaches and grapes and venison from the hall. "'The Southampton coach used to carry these tokens of affection "'to Miss Crawley at Brighton. "'It used sometimes to carry Mr. Pitt there, too, "'for he had an attraction at Brighton "'in the person of Lady Jane Sheepshanks.' Her ladyship and her sisters lived at Brighton with their mamma, the Countess Southdown, a strong-minded woman. A few words ought to be said about this noble family. Their chief, Clement, fourth Earl of Southdown, was for a time a serious young man. But his admirable mother learned very shortly after her noble husband's death that her son was a member of several clubs had lost greatly at play at Watier's and the cocoa-tree, and had encumbered the family estate, that he drove four in hand and patronized the boxing, and had an opera-box where he entertained the most dangerous bachelor company. His name was now only mentioned with groans in the dowager circle. The Lady Emily was her brother senior by many years the author of some delightful spiritual tracts and hymns, and a mature spinster. Having few ideas of marriage, her love for the anti-slavery cause occupied almost all her feelings. It is to her that we owe that beautiful poem. Lead us to some sunny isle, yonder in the western deep, where the skies forever smile and the blacks forever weep, etc. As for the Lady Jane, on whom Mr. Pitt Crawley's affection had been placed, she was gentle, blushing, silent, and timid. She wept for her profligate brother, and was quite ashamed of loving him still. She used to send him little smuggled notes in private, the dreadful secret which weighed upon her life was that she and the old housekeeper had been to pay Southdown a furtive visit at his chambers and found him, oh, the naughty, dear, abandoned wretch, smoking a cigar with a bottle of curacao before him. She admired her sister, 
adored her mother, and thought Mr. Crawley the most delightful and accomplished of men. Her mamma and sister managed everything for her, and regarded her with the amiable pity of superior women. It was to these ladies that Mr. Crawley paid his visits in Brighton, rather than to his aunt. When he met Miss Briggs coming home from the library, Mr. Crawley blushed as he stepped forward and shook her by the hand. He introduced Miss Briggs to the lady with whom he was walking, the Lady Jane Sheepshanks, saying, Lady Jane, permit me to introduce to you my aunt's kindest friend and affectionate companion, Miss Briggs, whom you know as authoress of the delightful lyrics of the heart of which you are so fond. Lady Jane blushed, too, as she held out a kind little hand to Miss Briggs, and said something very civil and incoherent about proposing to call on Miss Crawley, and with soft, dove-like eyes saluted Miss Briggs, while Pitt Crawley gave her a profound, courtly brow. The artful diplomatist! It was he who had given Lady Jane that copy of poor Briggs's poems— it was he, too, who suggested to Lady Southdown the great advantages of a friendship between her family and Miss Crawley, advantages both worldly and spiritual, he said, for Miss Crawley was now quite alone. Rawdon had estranged her affections. The greedy tyranny of Mrs. Bute Crawley had made the old lady revolt, and though he himself had held off from cultivating Miss Crawley's friendship, he thought now that every means should be taken to save both her soul and her fortune. The strong-minded Lady Southdown quite agreed, and was for converting Miss Crawley. This tall and awful missionary rode about the country in her barouche, launching tracts among the cottagers. Lord Southdown, her late husband, had been in the habit of approving of everything which his Matilda did and thought. Whatever changes her own belief might undergo, and she held a prodigious variety of opinions taken from all sorts of dissenters. She had not the least scruple in ordering all her tenants to follow and believe after her. Her household and children were expected to go down on their knees with her ladyship, while old Southdown, as an invalid, was allowed to sit in his own room and have the paper read to him. Lady Jane was the old earl's favourite daughter, and loved him sincerely. As for Lady Emily, the authoress of The Washerman of Finchley Common, her denunciations of future punishment were so awful that they used to frighten the timid old gentleman. "'I will certainly call,' said Lady Southdown, in reply to Mr. Pitt Crawley. "'Who is Miss Crawley's medical man?' He mentioned Mr. Creamer. Oh, a most dangerous and ignorant practitioner, my dear Pitt. I have been the means of removing him from several houses, though in one or two instances I did not arrive in time. I could not save poor dear General Glanders, who was dying under his hands. He rallied a little under the podger's pills which I gave him, but alas, too late. His death was delightful, however. Creamer must leave your aunt. Pitt agreed. He was carried along by the energy of his future mother-in-law. He had accepted Podger's pills and every other of her ladyship's remedies, bodily or spiritual. He never left her house without carrying respectfully away piles of her quack theology and medicine. "'As for her spiritual state,' continued the lady, "'that must be looked to immediately. "'I will send the Reverend Mr. Irons to her. "'Jane, write him a line, "'and say that I desire the pleasure of his company "'this evening at tea at half-past six. "'He ought to see Miss Crawley before she rests this night. "'And Emily, my love, get ready a packet of books for Miss Crawley. "'A voice from the flames?' A trumpet warning to Jericho, and the flesh pots broken, or the converted cannibal. And 
"'The washerwoman of Finchley Common, Mamma," said Lady Emily. "'Stop, my dear ladies,' said Pitt, "'with respect. I think it would be quite unadvisable. Remember Miss Crawley's delicate condition and how little she has been accustomed to consider her immortal welfare.' "'If you begin so soon, you will frighten her altogether. "'I know my aunt. "'Any abrupt attempt at conversion will only annoy her. "'She will very likely fling the books away "'and refuse all acquaintance with the givers.' "'You are as worldly as Miss Crawley, Pitt,' said Lady Emily, "'tossing out of the room her books in her hand. "'I need not tell you, my dear Lady Southdown,' Pitt continued, how fatal a little want of caution may be to our hopes. Remember my aunt has seventy thousand pounds. Think of her age and her highly nervous and delicate condition. I know that she has destroyed the will which was made in my brother's favour. It is by soothing that wounded spirit that we must lead it into the right path, and not by frightening it. "'And so I think you will agree that, of course,' Lady Southdown remarked, "'Jane, my love, you need not send that note. "'I will call upon Miss Crawley tomorrow. "'And if I might suggest, my sweet lady,' Pitt said blandly, "'it would be as well not to take our precious Emily, "'who is too enthusiastic, but rather our sweet dear Lady Jane.' Oh, "'Most certainly. <laughs> Emily would ruin everything,' Lady Southdown said. The next day, the great Southdown family carriage drove up in state to Miss Crawley's door, and the footman handed in to Mr. Bowles her ladyship's cards for Miss Crawley and for Miss Briggs.' By way of compromise, Lady Emily also sent Miss Briggs a packet containing copies of The Washerwoman and other favorite tracts for Miss B.'s own perusal. And for the servants' hall, she sent crumbs from the pantry, the frying pan and the fire, and the livery of sin. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.